Thank you. Now, I know that was a little bit of a long history lesson. For our Facebook friends, I know it was long as well. Felt it important to go over those. I don't know when's the last time you heard any of those things. Some of you may have never heard that. But again, it's all designed to help us understand that this book was not put together just happenstance, thrown together, but um, the, the amazing providence of God, the hand of God in the transmission of the text, the communication of his thoughts, the accuracy of copying, the preservation of manuscript, and, and so on, to help us understand that the Bible is trustworthy and the Bible is indeed reliable. So we want to continue along with this vein of thought, but as we do, I want to remind you of something else. I'm going to look at one of the questions that was asked to sort of be an entree to what we're looking at now. Don't forget we have the question and answer box in the back. We have the free books in the back on the Bible or on Bible study subjects, and we have the tracks in the back, uh, which we'd like for you to have is uh, why trust the Bible. Uh, this question says, the word of God seems a bit ridiculous, a literal Adam and Eve, a literal flood, Jonah in the belly of the whale, these seem very far-fetched. Um, and I want to point us again to the fact that while they may seem to human thinking far-fetched, we're cast back again upon something I quoted earlier, and that was the Lord Jesus himself. If we believe that Jesus Christ is indeed who he said he is, then we are left with this great fact, and it's a very helpful fact, that the Lord Jesus himself believed and taught these things and communicated them to his disciples in a way that they were to believe these things. So the argument is really whether or not we believe what Jesus Christ said. It's not what I say. It's not what somebody else says. It's what the Lord himself said, believed, taught, communicated to his followers to believe as well. And so the Lord taught about Jonah, Matthew twelve forty. The Lord taught about creation, Matthew nineteen four. The Lord taught the flood, Luke seventeen twenty seven. The Lord taught about Sodom and Gomorrah in those places, Luke seventeen twenty nine, and other verses as well of Scripture that tell us what the Lord Himself taught. We've also noticed that while some of these things may sound fantastic to the human mind, that with the God, if we believe there's a God who created all things and a God who controls all things, he is a God who is able to uh, use his own laws that he has put in place in the universe in whatever way pleases him and to supersede those laws. He is the highest authority in that sense. He's not bound in that sense by them. They are bound by him. And so if the Lord Jesus, for instance, stood upon earth and sped up what could be a natural process, such as fermentation, but decided instead of doing it in days or weeks or months to do it instantaneously and turn water into wine, well, no problem, since he is the one, according to John chapter 1, who created all things in the first place. No problem for the creator to, in our thinking at least, instantaneously perform a process, a miraculous process of turning water into wine and so on. And so with that in mind, we come again to the subject of the trustworthiness and reliability of Scripture. I'd like to go through a few things to think about. 
evidence that makes it reasonable to believe in the Bible. Now, there are two schools of thought. I briefly mentioned them yesterday. I mentioned them again today. So if you're not aware of them, that you might be aware of them. There are two basic schools of thought among those who believe the Word of God. And again, one of our folks here has reminded us that sometimes the problem about the Bible or believing it, the attacks don't just come from those who don't who are not Christians or don't have anything to do with the Bible, they come from within. The Lord uh, himself through Paul reminded us in the book of Acts, didn't he, that men will rise from among yourselves. That's the problem. Even in the days that the the Lord, just, just barely following the Lord's resurrection, in the days of Paul and John and Peter when they were still alive on earth, there were those who departed from the faith. John says there are those who have gone out from among us. And he didn't just mean physically. He meant doctrinally they've departed from the faith. And so there were attacks even then that came from within. And so-called scholarly people who, by their attacks, seek to undermine the authority of the Word of God. But among those who believe the Word of God, believe that this Bible is indeed God's truth and God's Word, infallible and inerrant, um, there are basically two schools of thought. There's one school of thought that says we don't need any outside evidences. For instance, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God. God never seeks to prove himself. doesn't provide you an argument there for why he exists or any of those things. He just comes right out of the chute and says, in the beginning, God. And so, The argument goes that if we have to rely on outside evidence, that makes the outside evidence greater than the thing. Sort of like trying to use a flashlight to point to the sun. We wouldn't need to do that, you see. So there is a a school of those who believe the Word of God and don't believe so much in outside evidences. There are others who believe very strongly in the supporting outside evidences that don't prove this is the Word of God, but do lend support to it. I tend to fall... Uh, somewhere in between the two, if I can do that. There is a point in the presentation of the gospel, for instance, when you don't have to defend the Word of God. You have to communicate the Word of God. Paul never went to some of the places he went, like Thessalonica or, or, or places like that, and said, now I want to show you the reliable evidences of the manuscript transmissions of why this book comes from... No, he preached the gospel, and people got saved. Do you know that that still works? I have a friend who's an elder in a certain local church, um, and I had the privilege one time of riding with him and getting to know him better than on a Sunday when you say, how are you? I'm fine. Yes. How's your family? Good. And see you later. And so we had time to discuss things. I said, tell me how you got saved. I knew he was from Nigeria. I knew the particular tribe he was from in Nigeria was predominantly Muslim. I said, how'd you, how'd you get saved? He said, well, it's very interesting. He said, first, you see, yes, I was a Muslim, my family Muslim, and uh I met a girl. She was not a Muslim. She was a Christian. I told her I was a Christian. And as the relationship continued a bit, she says, well, then you'll come to my church with me, won't you? And I thought, well, of course I will, you see. And he went to her church. And a man was preaching the gospel. And you know what happened? He got saved. (laughs) Never heard the gospel before. He got saved. The man was talking about the difference of faith and works, you know, and and that whole system. And this guy heard the gospel, he got saved. No cross-cultural evangelism, no anything. He just heard the gospel and he got saved. His family disowned him, came to the United States and has done very well. 
But uh, it reminded me again, sometimes what we need to do when it comes to the unsaved is just preach the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. So we can, in that sense, we don't have to make arguments. We preach the gospel. On the other hand, God himself has been pleased to give us witness and evidence, hasn't he? In many things. In his own son. The son of God stood on the planet and said to to the folks that were listening to him on a certain occasion, listen, basically, if you don't uh, believe my words, believe at least for the very works that I do. There's evidence of who I am. It's here before you. And God, in various and sundry other ways, has given us evidences as well. Unreasonable faith, believing in something in spite of the evidence. Blind faith, believing in something without any evidence. Reasonable faith, believing in something because of the evidence. So in that second group, you that are of college age, you that are approaching college age, you will sometimes find that people say that Christians are guilty of circular reasoning. Now, there is a sense in which circular reasoning isn't as bad as it's made out to be. Because lots of folks will use it, they just don't like you using it. So you begin with a supposition. But in this case, it goes like this. I believe the Bible is the Word of God. Well, how do you know that? Because the Bible says it's the Word of God. How do you know that? Because I believe the Bible is the Word of God. Because the Bible says it's the Word of God. Yeah, but, you know. Now, let me just tell you one thing that can break that cycle if you're ever confronted with that argument. The one thing that can break that cycle is the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I have often said in preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ that you might deny it, but you cannot disprove it. That is, if you examine the evidence the eyewitness accounts, the documentary evidence, and everything else that has to do with the resurrection of Christ, if you examine the evidence, you might deny it, but there is no other reasonable or rational explanation but the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And there are multiple stories of people. One of the great apologetics of our lifetime is Josh McDowell. And Josh McDowell had that very similar experience as a critic who didn't believe and sought to disprove Lee Strobel, the case for Christ, other reporters and lawyers and people down through the ages who have honestly examined the evidence and began as a critic, began as a skeptic, and came face to face with the truth, and then what do you do with it? That indeed Jesus Christ must have risen from the dead and became believers in Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, may I mention one very famous man to you, of whom I know you are familiar at least with his name, because he wrote a good many of our books of the New Testament. His name was Paul, formerly known as Saul, the Jewish rabbi. He didn't believe in Jesus Christ, (laughs) but he became one of the chief proponent preachers of the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if we realize the resurrection, you see, of Jesus Christ, that proves who he said he is the Son of God, and the Son of God believed in the Word of God and taught this as God's truth in God's book. And so that, in a sense, breaks that that pattern of circular reasoning. There is empirical evidence. By empirical evidence, we mean evidence that can be examined and looked at and observed. 
Josh McDowell states, and we've been over this in some of our history, no other work in all literature has been so carefully and accurately copied as the Old Testament. And we talked about the scribe and, and the meticulousness and the standards that were used, the accuracy of them copying those biblical manuscripts. I mentioned this before, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And when compared with manuscripts that were so much older than the current ones and that were copied by hand, well, they realized the incredible accuracy in comparing those different manuscripts. This man said that the biblical Dead Sea Scrolls are up to 1,250 years older than the traditional Hebrew Masoretic text. We have been using for a 1,000-year-old manuscript to make our Bibles. You now go, got scrolls going back to 250 B.C. And our conclusion is simply this. The scrolls confirm the accuracy of the biblical text by 99%. Tremendous proof of the reliability of the transmission of text, the accuracy of the transmission of the text. There's more evidence for the reliability of the New Testament than any other ten pieces of classical literature put together. Homer's Iliad, uh, manuscript copies, 1800, but a long time gap between some of the copying of those. Plato, 210 copies. Tacitus, 31 copies. The New Testament, 5,838 manuscript copies. Uh, Greek New Testament and Old, everything put together, over 18,000. I think when you count the Hebrew and the Greek together, something like 24,000 uh, uh, copies of manuscripts. So there's an incredible mountain of manuscript evidence more than any other of these writers. And so people believe, they have no problem believing that Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. Why would they have a problem believing that the Bible is the Word of God? It's a different thing, isn't it? It's a spiritual problem. That's what it is. They can't deny the evidence, but they deny it, of course, on, on spiritual grounds. Another great evidence, determining whether the historical record has been ver verified or affirmed by data outside of itself. Over one-fourth of the Bible is prophetic. Two-thirds of its prophecies have already been fulfilled. 700 years before his birth, the very city in which Jesus was to be born was identified by a man named Micah. Now, you know what's unique about that? If I said to you, I was born in Jacksonville, it'd be easy for you to make an assumption, wouldn't it, that I was born in Jacksonville, Florida? Well, as a matter of fact, you'd be right. But if you were from North Carolina, you would think you were born in North Carolina because there's a Jacksonville, North Carolina. There's a whole lot of other Jacksonvilles, Right? So the, the uniqueness of Micah's prophecy was not just that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, but in a particular Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrata, you see. That identified it specifically. So it narrowed the, the prophecy down to not any old city named that, but this particular city. And I'll speak about that in just a moment. Time after time, archaeologists discover articles verifying the claims of the Bible. It may be stated categorically, no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a single biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements of the Bible. Now, why do we say that? Because, you see, uh, over the years, years gone by, 
people said, oh, there's no proof that this ever existed or that that ever existed or this historical event ever occurred. Well, by, you know, people believed it because the Bible said it. That is Bible believers. And then one day they turned something over with the archaeologist spade. Oh, well, you know what? That war that the Bible mentioned that took place at a certain time, well, we, got, we have now evidence for it, you see. That person that nobody had ever heard of, that king whose name was never known, well, all of a sudden, here it is. Assuming that if there's one or two manuscripts or shards of pottery or whatever they were that they were inscribed upon, well, then there must be others as well. So wherever archaeology has unearthed things that have to do with the Bible, rather than disprove things that were taught in the Bible, it is shown that the Bible was accurate and true in those regards. Internal evidence. How does the historical record stand up to the test of internal validity? Now, I like this. The Bible was written by 40, 45 different authors over a span of about 1,500 years, three different continents, three different languages, yet no contradictions. I challenge you. I'll tell you what. We can make it pretty simple. Take four people in this room. Don't give them 1,500 years. Give them a week. Put you in four different rooms. I want you to write something. What? Mm -mm. I want you to write something. The bottom line is that when you come out of those four rooms in a month or a week, all the stories have to match. They all have to have the same theme. And none of them can contradict one another. You say, that's impossible. Well, it would be impossible unless there was somebody who told them each what to write. Interesting, isn't it? Now you take 40-something authors, many of them who never knew one another. They couldn't. They lived over 1,500 years apart, some of them, you see. And they lived in different areas geographically many times and under different circumstances. And they write individual books, and when those individual books are put together... See, this isn't like uh, a bunch of people, even in Old Testament, who said, okay, Moses wrote this, so we'll write this because we know what he wrote, and we want to make sure ours matches his. No, that wasn't often the case. Some of these people were in exile, they didn't always have access to what the other writings were at the particular time. But when their books were written and when they were all put together, they matched in theme, in continuity, and there were no contradictions. We go back to our other simple illustration. Somebody had to be behind. You would, if I sent four of you into a room and gave you 20 minutes and said, okay, I want you to come back, and you brought me four stories that matched, I'm like, now, somebody told you what to write. Yes, somebody told them what to write. God told them what to write. That's one of the amazing, again, internal evidences of the Word of God. The continuity of the theme, that there are no contradictions. Sometimes people will think there's contradictions and claim there are contradictions, but most of the time careful study will prove they weren't contradictions at all. All right, you ready? You can wake up now because this one is the one you want to tell your parents, boy, I really was awake. I wasn't on my phone the whole time. I wasn't doing Snapchat or Instagram. I was actually 
listening and paying attention. And this one's so easy, even I can remember it. You want to remember maps. Maps. Not moops, but maps. M-A-P-S. This is an acronym. An acronym means that the word uh, letters stand for other things. We just use it as a little uh, something to help us pin the thing in our mind and our thinking. So remember MAPS. Oh, but you've got to remember what MAPS stands for, don't you? And so when we come to the reliability of Scripture, we think about the word, the acronym MAPS. There are four words that are connected with this. Manuscripts, archaeology, prophecy, and statistics or statistical or scientific probability. Manuscripts, archaeology, prophecy, statistics. This is a little acronym that will help you when it comes to your understanding of the reliability and the trustworthiness of Scripture. Manuscripts. We've talked about that at length in our history lesson, how many manuscripts there are. Over 5,300 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin Vulgates, 9,300 others, 24,000 copies. Manuscripts compiled uh, prior to 600 A.D., 230. Massive amount of manuscript evidence. That's the M in maps. This is again showing you, uh, look at this. This is called the Magdalene Manuscript of Matthew 26. It goes back to the first century, to 50 or 60 A.D. as far as we can tell. So we've got actual scriptures going back almost to the time of the first apostles or shortly thereafter. We'd have others except two reasons that I believe, one that I know and one that I believe, uh, based upon, I think, a good supported truth. One, the type of materials they used, they didn't last. Actually, three reasons. Make that yay, even three. Two, these things had to be carried from place to place. And because they were handled and, and carried around in so many different places, they often didn't last for that reason either. But three, it has been said so often, I do think it bears some, some, some support in the truth, that God didn't leave those original manuscripts around so they would be venerated. That is, that they would be worshipped, they would be idolized. You know, as if they had some kind of unique significance to them. But anyway, we do have them going way back into the early centuries. So there's this close continuity and connection in the transmission of scriptures. Next, prophecy. Wait, I skipped one. What did I skip? Archaeology. Thank you, Luca. Archaeology. Yes, that's good. I skipped it for two reasons. One, it was a test. <laughs> Number two, because we've covered archaeology a bit, and I didn't want to belabor that. I wanted to talk about prophecy, which is the third letter in our acronym, MAPS. I don't know how clear this is. Probably not really clear to you there, except these are predictions or prophecies about the Lord Jesus. As I said, where he would be born, of what family he would be born, of what tribe he would be born, of the very timing of his coming according to the prophecy of Daniel 9, and on and on and on and on it gets. Now these are just a few of the many prophecies uh, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. There are other prophecies as well that don't concern just the person of Christ, 
but other things the prophets said that have already been fulfilled. So one of the great, again, evidences that we have, supporting evidences that this is the word of God, is not only manuscripts, not only archaeology, but prophecy that's already been fulfilled. And that leads us to the S in our MAP acronym, and that is statistical probability. Now, those of you who know me or have heard me speak, you will have heard me say this many times, math was never my strong suit. Um, It just never was. Some people thrive on it. I can't understand them, but uh, it wasn't me. My brain does not work that way. But statistical probability. What do I mean by statistical probability? Well, when we take the messianic prophecies, now this has been worked out by those that know, you know more mathematics than I do, but you take the fact that Jesus would be a descendant of David, the odds of that happening without God doing something miraculous, one in 10,000. The odds that he would be born in a specific city of Bethlehem, uh, one in 100,000. That he would present himself as a king riding on a donkey, now one in a million. And on and on it goes until it gets to the point beyond our, it's like the national debt. Who can comprehend it, right? Uh, We have to have some kind of graphic or something to figure it out. And that's exactly what I want to leave you with, a, a good graphic to think about in that regard. So what happens is the word of God kind of paints itself in our thinking. It's God, of course, but he kind of paints himself in a cup, in a corner, making it more and more difficult that the likelihood of anybody ever fulfilling these prophecies could take place without some miraculous occurrence. For instance, so a general prophecy, uh, it called in the uh, technical theological term, the proto-evangelium, which is just the first prophecy, Genesis chapter 3, the Messiah would be the seed of a woman. Well, guess what? The whole human race sprang from her. Could have been anybody, couldn't it? Oh, but now wait, by the time we get to the end of the book of Genesis, you see, no, it's been narrowed down. Now um, he must come from the tribe of Judah, you see. The lawgiver would come from the tribe of Judah. And it gets more and more specific and more and more detailed and more and more difficult for anybody to be able to fulfill it so that by the time we come to the actual fulfillment that occurred in the life of the Lord Jesus historically, we have uh, mathematically 10 to the 17th power. Now, I tried my best to write 10 to the 17th power. I am not sure I've got it right. So if you look at that and you have a mathematical mind, you say, no, you got it wrong. Well, okay, I I confess I did. 10 to the 17th power. It's a Guazala Gillian or whatever. You know, I don't even know what you do when you get past there. But let me illustrate that for you because, like I said, the national debt is hard to to get a hold of unless you visualize it. Remember how they used to do like stacks of dollars going up to the moon? That was kind of like what the national debt was. Anyway, this has been illustrated this way. So you take, now, now listen to this, not all the prophecies about Jesus Christ. You take just eight of the prophecies, specific prophecies, the very city he'd be born, riding on a donkey, et cetera, et cetera. Eight of those specific prophecies, the statistical probability of those being fulfilled accurately, 10 to the 17th power. That's been illustrated this way. Take the state of Texas. Cover the state of Texas with silver dollars. 
The amount of silver dollars, 10 to the 17th power, would cover the state of Texas two feet deep. Take one of the silver dollars, paint it black, mix them all up, blindfold a man, and tell him you got one, one choice, one pick. That, I mean, this higher odds in the lotto, isn't it? You know what I mean? And, and you got one pick, blindfolded, pick that one silver dollar, two foot deep silver dollar state of Texas. That's the odds of just eight of the prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus Christ being literally fulfilled the way they were. And there are hundreds of specific prophecies just about the Messiah. Now, we're not talking about other prophecies that have to do with events that occurred and different people and so on. So maps, manuscripts, archaeology, prophecy, statistics or statistical or scientific probability. Anecdotal evidence change lives. I can, well, not only concur with this, but I wrote the first part of it at least. My life has been amazingly impacted by the word of God. As, as I mentioned, was Saul, who had an about face after encountering Jesus Christ. Christianity spread far and fast. You know, and it's different, isn't it? Change societies. One of the fastest spreading religions in the world today is Islam. But what a difference. What a difference submission to Allah means as opposed to submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Wherever Christianity accurately taught and believed has spread, it has impacted for the good, changed lives, restored lives, restored families, mended hearts, societal changes, hospitals, nursing, good works of every kind you can possibly imagine. See, that's the difference, isn't it? Yes, Islam changes societies, but is it changed for the good? Not in the way that Christianity is. So one of the great anecdotal evidences, changed lives, changed societies. The power of the word of God to change your life. The Lord Jesus stood on this planet and he said, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The Lord Jesus, through Paul, said, as we've already noted in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, it is the word of God and it effectually works in you that believe. Our time is limited. I don't have the time to go into the multitudinous multitude of evidences besides the ones I've mentioned for the reliability and the trustworthiness of Scripture. But I, I hope that you've gotten a little bit of it at least and perhaps some things that can help you as you think on these things. But I want to challenge you. I want to challenge especially the young people. Give yourself. Give yourself to the serious reading and the study of God's Word. You know, there's a lot of things that aren't going to last. But you'll never lack if you give yourself to the reading and the study of God's word and God's truth. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it is absolutely a necessary component for your life. I'm not going to go into all the statistics about how much time we spend on our phones, how much time we spend on Facebook, and all those kind of things. But the excuse you don't have time, 
I don't accept it. I don't accept it. We always have time for what we want to do. We always have time for what we feel is important. I challenge you. Give yourself to the Word of God. When I look at my own life, I'm going to get personal now in that sense, and I think of what I was before Christ, and I go back 40 years ago to when I came to Christ, drug addict, doper, criminal, all the rest, really messed up. And people ask me, well, what was the key for you? I can only tell them, I said, there are, there are a couple of things that were a real important factor in my life. And one of those, very significant, was the Word of God. I know that may sound simplistic to you, but early on, in my early salvation days, I started reading the Word of God. I started memorizing the Word of God. And I started trying to put into practice the Word of God. And... Uh, I, I never regret that. I regret a lot of things in life, but I never regret giving myself to study of the Word of God. My only regret is that I haven't done it more diligently and haven't used my time more wisely. Now, I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you. I'm just telling you a reality. If you want to make any progress in the Christian life, you're going to have to do what Paul told to Timothy. Give yourself to these things. Remember the things you learned as from a child. Continue in those things which you have learned, as he said, seen and heard of me. Give yourself to the doctrine, the truth of the Scripture, and make progress. Uh, I'm cognizant of the fact that we all don't have the same abilities and gifts from God and so on. Not everybody's cup of tea to sit and read commentaries and, and Greek texts and all that kind of a thing. Some people thrive on that kind of a thing. But, God knows your limitations. All I'm saying is, are you using this book which God has given us to grow in the things of Jesus Christ? I challenge you with that. I hope you are. I'm encouraged that many of you are. But if you're not, give yourself. Make the time. Somehow you can do it. And uh, you'll never regret Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Those are the words of the Lord Jesus. And once again, we're faced with that, aren't we? He stood upon this planet and prayed to the Father. Thy word is truth. And how privileged we are to have this book. No matter what arguments we use, there will always be skeptics and critics that come along, and they may have another argument and a different argument, and they may have things that sound very valid at some time or another. But we fall back upon this. That if we believe Jesus Christ, we believe this book is God's word and God's truth. We can rest on that no matter if the world scoffs at us, laughs at us, ridicules us, or anything else. So I hope this has been some help to you thus far. And the will of the Lord will continue. I suppose we'll take a, a break for now and then have the questions in a couple of minutes or so. Good. Father, we thank you again for giving us your word. Now, Lord, I know that I've gone over a lot of material in a very short period of time. And if the situation were reversed and I were sitting where these folks are sitting, um, I don't know how much of it I would absorb. I hope everyone can come away with what we started at the outset to do, and that is to say that no matter what the question or the criticism or, or whatever it may be, at least we know 
we have a reliable basis for believing what we believe. We're not just taking a shot in the dark. This is not unreasonable faith. This is not blind faith. There is support for those things we believe from this book, the Bible itself. And there are other evidences as well, as we've mentioned. And so we pray that it might help bolster us and strengthen us in our faith and our understanding and belief that this book indeed is your word. We give you thanks again in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.